Okay, well, we're reading from Luke um, chapter 11 today. A bit of a long reading. So we're starting at verse 14 of Luke 11. And it's Jesus in Beziable. Beziable, sorry, Jesus in Beziable. Jesus was driving out a a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself we ruined, and a house divided against itself will fail. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drove out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who fear the word of God and obey it. The sign of Jonah. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Lamp of the Body No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you... The light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and not part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Woe on the Pharisees and the experts in the law. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. 
Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outward side, outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, Are you experts in the law? And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you built tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testified that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you built the tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions waiting to catch him in something he might say. So um, the Bible is this great, multicolored, high-definition painting filled with millions of colors. And it's the preacher's aim to present every one of those colors in its full force with this unmuted beauty and awe and rawness. So that you hear God's word, God's voice, which is contained in this painting. And sometimes you're going to find in this vibrant tapestry, wonderful verses, encouraging things. Things that make you go, wow, the God of the galaxy, the God who has made heaven and earth has done this and acted this way and lives and breathes and moves and communicates. And you feel encouraged and you feel, you feel in awe. But today is not one of those days. Because sometimes... The tone of those words leaves you feeling wrecked, run over with a truck, just totally undone, totally at the end of yourself, insulted almost, dare I say it. And so today, I just want to take the tone of this text, particularly verses uh, 33 to 54, and, and help you feel what the Pharisees would have felt sitting at that table as Jesus said, woe to you. In fact, someone has glibly given the title to these verses as spirit-inspired insults. That is sharp, direct, pointed speech, animated and approved by God. It's those strange verses that Jesus and even Paul at times call a spade a spade. 
where they confront the dark motives of the hearts of those who are actually stopping people come into the kingdom of God, take away the keys of the curious to explore Christianity and who Jesus is. And so I wonder, do you have a category for this type of speech? That we hear from the lips of Jesus, not just words of grace and love, but also truth delivered boldly. But but far from being just some ancient form of provocative Twitter post, Jesus deeply loves those that he's speaking to. And if you hear these words of voice, six words of voice correctly, there is indeed love and compassion here. Gentleness, mercy behind them. It's just that it has to travel over the dark rocks of the human heart to get there. And some of us know those dark places well. More often than not, though, when you see them, when Jesus reveals them, we don't like it. But you see, the light of Jesus shines not just to shines to save us, sorry, not to condemn us, if only we'd hear and listen. So here's where we're heading. Will you sit here for the next 20 minutes and let Jesus deconstruct you? Your life, your heart, your ambitions, your goals, your aspirations. Will, will you let him deconstruct you this morning? Would you let him walk into all those dark secrets of your heart to shine the beautiful light of truth on them? Will you let Jesus totally undo you today? But it's not just bad news, you see, because... May you also allow Jesus to then rebuild you. Secularism and postmodern thinking, they love to deconstruct everything, but they don't offer an adequate rebuilding option. But Jesus does both. So let Jesus both deconstruct and then rebuild you to the image of God this morning. And you can follow the outline on the screen. I've, I've thrown away the one in the book because um, I've totally changed it, so ignore that. Um, follow that one. And we're going to look at two stories. One question that is raised from those stories, and then a way forward after that. So two questions, sorry, two stories, a question, then a way forward. The first story is uh, starts in verse 14, and it's all about an answer that you don't want to hear. So in verse 14 to 28, a man is, is so Jesus cast a demon out of a man. We aren't taught any details of, of what happened or, or we don't really actually get a lot of details about him because the point in Luke's retelling the story is not the miracle in this instance but the reaction that it elicits. Some say Jesus is working with Satan to which Jesus says, don't be ridiculous, that would mean Satan's actively working against himself so mm, scratch that. Others are stubborn, they're not satisfied and they say, Jesus, prove it by giving us a sign that you are actually from God. So verse 29, Jesus replies and says, actually, guys, you've had enough signs. And for some people, they might say, "If I will believe in God if. And more often than not, if that actually happened, they still wouldn't believe. It would never be enough. And so Jesus says, guys, let me show you the signs that are already there in high definition that show you who I really am. So the first is in verse 30. Jesus says, look back in your history. As the people of God, look back and you'll see Jonah. Jonah was a sign. You know the guy that got swallowed by a fish and went to Nineveh and preached the world's shortest sermon. But it wasn't being in the fish for three days that was the sign. It's the preaching, as verse 32 makes clear. Jesus is saying, he's the true word of God. He's the one that's being announced. 
to be believed in to find salvation from God's judgment. And then he says in verse 31 and 32, think about the queen of the south. Back in Solomon's day, this dignitary came from a far off land. She heard about the wisdom and how God was working in Israel at the time. And she came and she was left breathless at the scope and the magnitude of what Solomon knew and who God was, this one true God through his people. And both of these people signs, Jesus says, someone greater than them is here. As in, right in front of you now, as I'm speaking, there is someone greater. And it's Jesus, the greater word and the greater wisdom. You know, you can't find Jesus the same way you search for a new asteroid or a new animal or a law of nature. There's been sightings, again, of the Tasmanian tiger. Uh, came up this week, I saw. Brilliant! They're looking for this wonderful animal that went extinct in 1930. But you, you can't find God that way. God is a personable being. And so he takes the initiative to reveal himself to you. And he has. And this is the third response that ties into that. In verse 33 to 36, Jesus talks about light now. So he expelled a demon in verse 14. Talks in 24 to 26 about Jesus filling a person. Then the sign of Jesus is greater than Jonah and the queen of the south. And his point in all of this is that God is not hidden. God is not hidden. He will let himself be found. He's calling out to you. The, the, the Oli, oli, oxen free, as you might say if you're playing hide and seek. Come out from hiding. I'm here. I'm calling to you. Let yourself be found and find safety in him. But the answer they don't want is that calling for a sign is a sign of spiritual blindness. The speaking God has spoken. Will you see him? Will you hear him? Will you come out to him? Well, actually, not for a group of people that are listening. This is the next story, story number two. In verse 13 to 54, out of this conversation, Jesus is invited to a meal, and this becomes an example of light and dark. You know, it seems every time that Jesus goes to a meal, or invited to one by the Pharisees, it just never quite achieves what they hope it would achieve. He, he, he seems to happily to go there, but then he starts to rearrange their life, rearrange their space, and he doesn't, he doesn't behave the way they expect. He breaks all their expectations, and, and normally they just get angry with him, and that certainly happens here. So we see in verse 38 that the one who invited him is surprised by Jesus' behavior. It's the same word in verse 14 with the uh, amazement of the power of Jesus actually removing the demon. This time, there's not amazement at the power of God to heal and transform and and bring life. Actually, there's astonishment that Jesus would not act a certain way. What did he do? Well, he was a rabbi and he didn't follow this social custom of of washing in a certain way before eating. Now, that had nothing to do with hygiene. It had everything to do with some type of special cleansing that these guys had decided that needed to take place. And Jesus was quite happy not to oblige. He's not being a rebellious teenager, just bucking authority for for the sake of it. It would seem that this hand-washing thing was somehow elevated to the law of God status, and Jesus isn't happy to play that game. And he sees the astonishment on the host's face. He knows what he's thinking. I have have offended you. Um, Let me explain that in verse 39. And he addresses all of them. 
not just the host now. He says, you know, you guys are really good at cleaning the cup and the plates and the bowls. and the sp- You're really good at cleaning the outside, making everything look wonderful and beautiful and amazing. Great appearance. Trouble is, it's still dirty on the inside. And then you see where he's going, what he's actually talking about. It's the person, not the cup. Team, inside you're full of greed and evil. And it's filthy for me to look at you. Like, horribly disgusting. You guys are fools because you've missed the point. Jesus sees the greed, the evil that's tarnished their insides. And the language is is very similar to verse 35. They are full of darkness, full of greed and evil. You know, it may not be a demon that needs expelling from you, from the Pharisees. Maybe it's the greed and wickedness that floods you instead. And just as Jesus confronted the evil spirit in verse 14 with the power and authority of the kingdom of God, so he does here too. Just as the words of Jesus expel evil, his words confront the evil too. He can see those dark pockets of our heart. Call them for what they are. He exposes our dark secrets, our filthy habits with bluntness like a sledgehammer to break them away and it hurts. My brother-in-law rides dirt bikes and he has for a long, long time and he's had his fair share of um, accidents. And it hurts to fall off, as you would expect, going 80, 100 kilometers in a dirt track. But one of the most painful parts is not the initial crashing, it's when you get in the ambulance back to the hospital and they have to cut off your clothes and remove the helmet and you're filthy with dirt. And they actually have to scrub you with this abrasive material to clean you. And so you've just crashed and you're in pain and you're going to get better because you're in the hospital, but you have to get washed and cleaned. And it really hurts to have an open wound rubbed and cleaned. And they'll put injections in you too to make it the pain go away. But initially, the injection going into the open wound, it hurts. It, it, it's painful being exposed like that. And often, Jesus' words can be just as painful. We see that in verse 40 and 41. Jesus says, you're fools. God made the inside and the outside as if God was not unable to see what's really going on in your hearts just because you look good on the outside. And they should know better. This is, these are the Pharisees. These are the, one of the religious sects of the day that know the word of God. They're not unintelligent. And Jesus' rhetorical question sets up the answer. Actually, yes, God has made the inside and the outside. And when the light floods you inside out, it overflows to generosity to the poor, verse 41. Because God is concerned with both spheres, inside and outside. And for, for a Jew, though, giving alms, being charitable, it was hugely important. One Jewish writer said, It's better to give alms than lay up gold. For arms deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. That's a very extreme view. But that attention to the outward should be paid to the inside as well. And so Jesus takes a breath after kind of laying it out. And he looks around the room and with six very specific examples, he says, here's what darkness looks like for you. And he begins by saying, woe, to start it off. And he's not so much being an angry prophet Tertullian, the early church father, thought Jesus was an angry prophet. We should celebrate this kind of feistiness from him. But, but woe has a, it's a painful in, in, interjection here. A remark that's deeply emotional. Jesus is grieved, frustrated, mourning the fact that those who should have the light and lead others to God are actually in darkness. 
he has a goal when he says it too. He's not just throwing insults or doing some ancient form of click baiting. He knows the Pharisees are really good at making followers. That their way of life is actually very contagious because hearts like the Pharisees' way better than the way of Jesus. And what drives him to say this is love because his goal is awakening and repentance. So it's grace that he confronts their agenda. It would not be loving if Jesus said to them, you do your truth, I'll do my truth, let's play in the sandbox as a happy family. So the first boy is emphasizing all the wrong things. Verse 42, they're focused on the mint. They were skilled in cutting up the tiny little parts of their life, but they did not consider the justice, the love of God. The mint mattered more than people. Pharisees always try and avoid justice and people. It wasn't that the mint was wrong. We learned last week, Mary and Martha. It was all a matter of priorities. Even Jesus says, do both. Give the little, go after the big. You guys have got it wrong. And at that point, you can imagine the Pharisees shuffling in their seats, looking down maybe. He scans the room. He doesn't miss a beat and he keeps going. Maybe that was it. No, actually, verse 43, these people are glory junkies. They're status seekers, Instagram influencers of the first century, you'd say. They love to be respected and honored. They love to have the invites to all the places of prestige in their culture, in the marketplace, sitting in the best place in their community. That's what they went for. Their faith was only there to be seen by others. You love sitting in the best places of meals and... But consider that they're at a meal when he says this. And the pleasure is not in the position at the table. Uh, Typically a meal in in Jesus' day would be arranged like a U-shape with a table in the middle, everyone around it, and you would assign the seat. And and the joy in that, in a meal, is not the position you have, it's who you're eating with the person. The honour and glory of Christianity rests in being able to know and relate to the one who gave up his position to die, to rise, to scoop you up out of an eternity of hell and misery and to bring you to his table. John the Baptist said, I am just the least in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm totally happy being the least in the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you and me when we make Jesus all about my name, my fame, my reputation, not his. And the third boy is a little strange though. He says, you're like an unmarked grave that people walk over. That's weird. But in in Jesus' day... um, To step on someone's grave would make you ceremonially unclean. You have to go through a lengthy purification ceremony. So what they would do out of courtesy is whitewash them, clean them so you'd know there's a grave there, someone's tomb. Don't don't walk on it. But Jesus says people are walking on top of you all the time, not knowing that underneath you is death. So they're leading people to death, not to life. And and, and someone sees Jesus take a breath. He said three words, and he, um, he says in verse 45 very boldly, he goes, um, Jesus, you're insulting the Pharisees, fine, but you're insulting me too. I'm an expert in the law. Maybe he's asking for clarity, as in he's saying, uh, Jesus, you're not really speaking to me, are you? Just the others, because I'm the expert in the law, and they've got it wrong, but look at me and the rest of us. We've got it together, you see. It's fine if you want to insult them. I'm happy to play that game, but just clarify that I'm not the one you're talking to, please. And then Jesus certainly clarifies. 
He shows how dark their hearts are too. Woe to you, experts of law. And then 52, verse 52, the strongest of all the indictments he could say, he says, you think you're leading people to life. You think you have the keys of the kingdom of God, the keys of heaven in your hand, leading people to a better tomorrow, but actually you don't. You lead people away and you don't even go on yourself. You're the opposite to what they think. Heaping on burdens, putting up obstacles, saying, this is what God wants from you. And people are so welcoming of that way. Because being a Pharisee is contagious. Spurgeon once said that we're born legalists, but made into Pharisees. We like to put confidence in ourselves, but all it does is create a system that does away with any need for God's grace because we sacrifice the cross for a program or a system or a method to appeal to. Richard Baxter, a 16th century pastor, once said, you cannot lead anyone to living water if you're not drinking from it yourself. And these ones are drinking from a cracked cistern, toilet water, and encouraging others to do the same. And he puts it out there, Jesus. And then he leaves. I'd love to see how he did that. Does he just stop and kind of know that the, the, there's, you could cut the knife with the air, it's so tense that he just jumps out the room or does he have the meal and kind of he's happily eating and everyone's looking at him what what we don't know it just says jesus then leaves but but we learn what the pharisees and the experts of the law do so how would you feel though sitting there at that meal come of a meal jesus will be there brilliant and he just wrecks the whole place well with his words and you cut you to pieces you're on the floor well They do actually what we do when our hearts are exposed. They act with hostility, not humility. They're fierce. They want to self-justify instead of fearing God. They want to catch Jesus and what he says. Notice they say, he says, they listen intently to his words from that point on. Not because they're asking the question, how do I find the way to heaven, the way of life? But because they want to trip him up to catch Jesus. The problem isn't that Jesus had to say this. The problem, sorry, the problem isn't what Jesus said, but the fact he had to say it. We have a classic example that follows many of God's previous dealings with his people from the time of the prophets. It's not thus says the Lord here through Isaiah or Amos. It's the greater than Jonah who came from the very table of God in heaven in the flesh to reveal our dark hearts. And that was an awkward dinner party. But it does raise the question at this point, isn't the God who we worship, who you may be exploring today, if you're not yet, uh, wouldn't say you're a Christian, not part of God's kingdom, isn't that God supposed to be gentle? This doesn't sound like gentle Jesus, nice, meek and mild. This sounds more like the line in Aslan's Narnia book when he said Aslan can't be tamed. So what do we make of this? Well, firstly, we we have to say that God is actually gentle. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came as a gentle shepherd of God's people. Isaiah 40 pointed to this time and he said, he tends his flock like a shepherd, gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. What we find in this passage is there is a distinction as to why Jesus speaks so strongly to some, but is so gentle and patient with others. Someone has said what we have is a distinction between apostles of the world, apostles of the world, and refugees from the world. 
What they mean is that a refugee is someone who is at least interested in hearing the gospel, curious maybe about Jesus. They may not believe, they're curious, recognizing there's something in their life that may feel guilt or sin, shame. They may think, I need to explore Christianity in some way. And, And Jesus is never harsh with these. He often says, go and sin no more. He appeals to the woman of Samaria sitting at the well and says, I'll give you living water. The woman who is caught in adultery, he says, I'm not here to condemn you. But in contrast, the apostles of the world prowl around looking for someone to devour. They have a false gospel. They're looking to spread it. They oppose the gospel and the work of Jesus. And what they need is a rebuke in order that they too may be brought to repentance and can be restored. God is slow to anger, as we read Psalm 103. And it's because God loves all of this right and good that he also hates what is opposed to his own character. He hates sin. And in the person of Jesus, God came to reveal our sin, then to expiate it and forgive through his death and resurrection and the promises to no longer hold our sin against us. You see, if God was not a God who hated sin, who felt a holy anger, he would not be worthy of praise. He would not be good and just and right. And so the kindness and gentleness and patience of God is to lead us to repentance. Even if it hurts a little bit to hear it. And so here's the way forward. Two things. We're going to start from the inside out. Not the Pharisees' outside in approach. So let the gospel argue with you. Let Jesus undo you with his words. Leave you with nowhere to hide. The Pharisees, you see, they would emphasize all the external parts of their faith. And religion would teach us that we have to do this to be loved and accepted, to work, to be good, to do better, to try harder, and then you can appeal to that and you'll be okay. And we all work that way to some extent. But Jesus says, actually, you're already loved and accepted because of my behavior towards you, not your behavior towards me. And because the light of the world came to shine and to face the dark corners of our heart, who went to the cross, who experienced creation going dark on him, we find forgiveness and grace and truth. Because God loves us enough to go into the dark to find us, to reveal to you and me what we're actually like, And then to do something even more insulting than point out our sin, but actually to be killed by those who pointed out, who he pointed out the sin to. You see? He let himself be killed by dark humans, while innocent of any wrong. So may you let the gospel of Jesus argue with you, undo you, challenge you, confront you. I hope you can hear what I'm saying. Pick another word, insult you. And then here is costly grace to bring you into the light as well. And the second thing is, then let the gospel shape you. Because once you gain this inside-out understanding, it revolutionizes how you relate to God, yourself, and others. In verse 41, Jesus says, you're not the light that people need. They're not generous to the poor. In fact, all of the woes have a social dimension to them. The problem is the Pharisees don't see that. They don't see God properly. They don't see others properly. They don't see themselves properly. They're using people for their own gain. They burden them instead of offering them freedom through Jesus. They persecute God's gospel, those that proclaim the gospel. They hold back God's grace. People are objects to their own ambitions. They they violate trust with each other and God. They, They look for a way not to help people. These are not the guy that you want to be around. But you see, the gospel transforms our hearts, our thinking, our approaches to everything. 
Ephesians 5.1 says we should be imitators of God and it's because of the grace of God towards you and me whose sin is totally offensive to him, yet he forgave me that the gospel frees me to serve others, not so that I can feel good about myself, not so that I, I can have one up over you, but out of love. I'll let the gospel prioritize and inform my ethics, my behavior, how I parent, how I go to work, how I view marriage and singleness and technology. The gospel transforms me inside out so that because I am already full in Christ, I will then serve others. So then, let us make sure that God's grace is the most illuminating and satisfying part of our lives. That all our thinking, all our doing will come from the sound of the gospel of grace. Even though it's pointy, even though there are times when you will fall into a pattern of behavior or you will become a little Pharisee in some part of your life. But instead of doing what the Pharisees did and actively listen to God to self-justify, may you run to that light once more. Instead of playing in the darkness, may you hear the words, Oli, Oli, oxen free, and come back to the light and let the gospel argue with you and let the gospel shape you. Let's pray. Father God, you are the God who is on mission, who has been since you made everyone and everything to bring us into your kingdom. And through the personal work of Jesus, we, Father, we see, we feel, we're exposed to the true condition of our hearts. And God, we, we don't like what you reveal to us. We naturally hate coming to the light. But Father, soften us so that we would see that it's actually your grace and kindness to lead us to repentance. That we turn from sin and darkness and actually turn to you. That we would then be able to serve, love one another, not out of a desire to be loved, but because we are already loved by you. That we would live and kick around in this world, Jesus, as your ambassadors, representing you, not like a Pharisee, like a redeemed son and daughter who is made new, made alive in Christ. Give us all we need. In your name we pray. Amen.